So Lord, be kind to us now. And the love that uh, Melody just sang about, that you might pour it out on us. This week's been hard for some of us. Our suffering's been great, and we've been disappointed and even afraid. So bring comfort to us now by your good word and your spirit to each one, each one of us as we have need. And this we pray in Christ's great name. Amen. So, Kevin Miller tells a story that you might be able to connect with. He, he says, uh, about 10 years ago, he was renting a car to drive through Fort Wayne, Indiana for work. So he said, I went to Enterprise to rent a car, and they gave me a big, brand new, comfy Chrysler 300 to drive. He said, I loved it. In fact, I enjoyed feeling large and in charge so much that I blew right past the first toll booth. He says, you see, I'm, I'm not used to stopping for toll booths because I have something called an iPass in my own car. It's a little device that signals I've already prepaid my, my tolls. But after passing the first toll booth, I thought about it, and I thought, oh, this car doesn't have an iPass. But just as I started to worry about it, I thought, well, this car belongs to the rental car company, not me. So they're probably responsible for any tolls. That must be what your rental money goes toward covering. <laughs> so, so when I got on the interstate, I drove past another toll thinking, even if I am responsible for the tolls, there's only a few tolls between here and Indiana, maybe like about four bucks round trip. So I'm sure there's some threshold where they don't even bother sending you a bill for the tolls. I mean, it, it wouldn't be worth their time to send me a bill for only four bucks. Nothing's going to happen. So I said I returned from my business trip, and a month or two goes by, nothing happens. And I knew nothing ever would. He said, but then in October, I received a piece of mail that read, notice of toll violation. So he says I was right to, to a degree. The tollway authority wouldn't bother sending me a bill for my measly $3.90 in tolls. But when you add a $20 fine for every one of the five toll booths I drove past, they did bother sending me a bill for $103.90. He said, I about had a heart attack. Um, they had me dead to rights. They had a photo of my rental car license plate. They knew ex the exact lane number I was in. And then he says this. He says, the fact that months had gone by and nothing had happened didn't mean nothing was ever going to happen. It's interesting. The idea that time had passed and nothing had happened didn't mean that nothing was ever going to happen. And I, I think oftentimes this is how we think about any kind of a verdict that's going to come in our direction, right? Delay begets denial. So if nothing happens for a while, it's easy to assume nothing's ever going to happen. Not just with legal judgments, but I think we operate that way with the judgment. Um, you know, only about 60% of Americans believe in a judgment that involves heaven and hell. And only about 4% think they're in danger of hell. Um, in the letter that we're studying in the Bible, it's way in the back end of your Bible, it's called 1 John. And uh, he is writing, his, one of his major themes is love. He's writing over and over and over about love. Just in the little chapter that we're studying today in 1 John chapter 4, we run into all kinds of remarks about love, things like this. Um, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Skip down a couple more verses, you, you encounter this. In this is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the great payment for our sins. Beloved, if, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Twice more in this chapter alone, John's going to tell us God is love. So that, all that love talk can have an effect on us similar to the way we think about, about judgment most of the time. If God is love, then the percentages go way down that we or even anyone we know will ever have to face God's judgment. Um, but John does something surprising in the middle of all of his love talk in 1 John 4. He brings up this topic. Look at it with me in the first verse we're going to cover today in, in verse 7. He says this, By this is love perfected, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So here, John, again, it's right in the middle of all these references to the love of God. He inserts this little idea of a day of judgment. So in John's mind, the God who is love is also judge. And so I'd like to stop at this moment and just underscore the reality that lies behind John's use of an expression like judgment day. Okay? He's not talking about some sci-fi Schwarzenegger movie. Okay? Jesus talked about a day of judgment. Look, look in, uh, with me at Matthew 12. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Jesus said that. And he, he says this over and over in Matthew chapter 25. He puts it this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's Jesus, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then he'll say this. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not only did Jesus teach this, the Apostle Paul taught about judgment. In Romans chapter 2, we read this, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The writer of Hebrews picks up the same theme. He says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment the prophets they went on and on about this they uh, they referred to it as the day of the lord and isaiah for instance says this wail for the day of the lord is near as destruction from the almighty it will come therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt they will be dismayed pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, and their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Book of Revelation predicts this day. It says, I saw the dead, John writes, great and small, Standing before the throne of God, the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Um, even our ancient Christian creeds teach it. 
This is from the Apostles' Creed, which has a section about Christ in it. You'll recognize it. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead. So over and over again, we're taught that there is, there is a day coming that is a day of judgment. So when, when um, someone like John Lennon sings that we are to imagine there's no heaven and imagine there's no hell, um, that's terribly, terribly misleading. The Psalms, the book of Hebrews, the apostle Peter and Paul The prophets and Jesus himself warn us um, there is a day of judgment coming and it is so very real. Um, And John writes about it in his book that's characterized by love when he says again in verse 17, um, by this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So he does something beautiful here. He tells us that even though that day is coming, there's a way to be protected in that day. He alludes to a protection from judgment, a way to stand before a holy God, the Lord Almighty himself, with confidence on a judgment day. What he says is, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence. When love is perfected in us, we have confidence on the day of judgment. He, he uses similar language just a couple of verses before, back in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God's love is perfected in us when we spread it to the people around us. When we are loved by God such that it spills over out of our lives onto those around us. Um, We have confidence. Our love is perfected. It's reached its goal. Pastor John Piper says that in these verses, perfected love is not flawless love. It's not loving perfectly. Perfected love is when you don't just talk about the need to share Christ, you do it. It's not... It's when you just don't talk about the hungry, you feed them. It's when you just don't talk about floundering new believers, you disciple them, and so on. So, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So, God's love for us, poured into our lives, spills over among the people around us, and we love them. And this is a great confirmation, a confidence that on that day of judgment, we'll stand under God's mercy, not under his wrath. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he also is, uh, he is, so also are we in this world. It's kind of a cryptic statement at the end of this verse. But he's saying, as Jesus is in the world, we're in the world in the same way. And what I think John has in mind is that we are in the world as those who are loved by God, just like Jesus. Um, Jesus prayed for this to happen in John 17. He says, when Jesus prays, he says, Father, I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known 
so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. So Jesus is praying that the same way that the Father loved him, the Father would love us. So we are in the world as those who are loved by God and like Jesus, love those around us. So clearly, let's be clear, um, it's not because of your loving deeds that you will be safe on judgment day. It's because of the love and mercy of God poured into you that creates those loving deeds. Those loving deeds are our assurance that the love of God has been poured into us. We know we belong to Him because we love one another. So be honest, when you think about Judgment Day, how are you feeling about standing before God? Are you confident? Are you nervous? Are you terrified? See, John is helping us here. He's letting us know we don't have to be afraid. That if we have embraced the love of God in Christ such that it it creates in us a love for others, especially his people, we have assurance on that day that the love of God abides in us. Confidence comes from embracing the love that God has for us in Jesus. And last week we saw this. This is how God shows his love for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if you confess Jesus and you believe that he was sent into the world to bear the full and terrible penalty for our sins, if you embrace God's love for you in Jesus, then that love will be seen as you love others, and that gives you confidence on Judgment Day that you really are in the love of God. And on that day, you'll experience mercy, not wrath. There is no fear in love, John continues. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, the idea that love casts out fear, it can raise a question, especially if you think of verses like this one from Psalms. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Um, We studied the book of Joshua together. Joshua 24, what does Joshua tell the people to do? Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Even Jesus endorses fearing God. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So in a number of passages, these two ideas live happily together. Love and fear, Deuteronomy 10 Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? Love and fear coexisting together. So why is John telling us that love casts out fear? And I think the answer to that lies in the idea that there is a kind of fear that coexists with love, and there's a kind of fear that can't. 
Um, Ed Welch uh, is a counselor. He, he writes about this subject, and he, he helps me think about this. He says it's on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have terror fear, the abject fear of the judgment of God. And on the other end, you have what he calls worship fear. And he explains them this way. He says, please don't think only of terror when you think of the fear of the Lord. He says, the fear of the Lord, like the fear of people, includes a spectrum of attitudes. On one side, the fear of the Lord does indeed mean a terror of God. We are unclean people. We appear before an almighty God who is morally pure and we're rightfully ashamed before him and punishment would be completely just. Terror is our natural and appropriate response. Such fear shrinks back from God. It wants to avoid God as much as possible. But he says this terror fear is only one end of the fear of the Lord. At the other end of the spectrum is a fear reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. This fear of the Lord means reverent submission that leads to obedience. Like terror, it acknowledges our sinfulness. It acknowledges God's justice and his anger against sin. But this worship fear also knows God's great forgiveness, mercy, and love. It knows that because of God's eternal plan, Jesus humbled himself by dying on a cross to redeem even his enemies from slavery and death. It knows that in our relationship to God, God is the one who always says, I love you first. And this knowledge, this, this worship fear draws us closer to God rather than causing us to flee. So when we think about this kind of fear over here, this worship fear that can coexist with love, you might think about a place like this. This is the devil's pool at Victoria, Victoria Falls right in the heart of Africa. That is not a trick of the camera. Those people are right on the edge of the falls. Uh, this is, there's the devil's pool where those people are sitting. That's about a 360-foot drop. Okay, they are right on the edge. But what I want you to notice in these pictures is you notice a guy that doesn't look like he came with the people. He kind of standing out a little bit. Are you able to pick him up? Okay, here's, here's another example. Um, there's a guy in these pictures... Um, he's the guide, okay? and his job is to keep those people alive. So they're right on the edge of these falls, experiencing all the awe and power, but they're kept safe. There you can pick out the guide again. He looks a little more local than the other folks. Here's another example. Um, here's this guy with this dad, I assume, with his son keeping him safe, yet he's experiencing the power and the awe of the falls. Really bad parenting. <laughs> really helpful illustration, okay? Don't, don't try this at home, okay? Or on your next trip to Africa. But um, so, so when John is saying there's no fear in love, perfect love casts out fear, He's talking about that terror fear um, where we are not kept safe. In particular, he has in mind what he just talked about, the fear of judgment day. He says love casts out the fear of God's judgment on that day. 
And as a result, the Bible talks about judgment day for people who live in the love of God that comes to us in Christ as a day of joy. Listen to this description from the Psalms again. Joyful language. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Why do they sing for joy? The next verse says, they sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So they're singing, all creation is singing for joy because the Lord is coming to judge. Um, For those who abide in the shelter of the love of God, this means joy on that day. It means for us that all wrongs will be set right. Every injustice will be made right on that day. And we will receive from God the pleasure His pleasure for our lives lived for his sake. But mostly, um, judgment day in the scripture is associated with the return of Jesus, who is the one we love, and the one who loves us so. As Revelation chapter one puts it, he is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own life's blood. So what will that day be like for us? who live in the love of God, when Jesus comes back as judge, what will that day be like for us? And the best way I know to think about it, uh, that day will be like for those of us who are the beloved of God, is like these videos. Think about, watch these videos and think about them with respect to Christ coming back for you. Watch these. It's a Memorial Day tribute, so it starts out with this expression of appreciation. Jessica Friedman. I want to stop here for just a second. Jessica's father called me. Jessica has a brother in Afghanistan that she wishes to be here today. I know what that's like. My wife and I had a son in Iraq in the Marines. And Jessica, when you see your brother.
I've watched those about half a dozen times. They still wreck me okay? <laughs> every time I watch them. But for those of us who love Jesus and are the ones that he loves so, uh, what will that day be like for us? Um, Gerald Van helps us. He's a philosopher, and he says that to grow in wisdom and love is not to lose all fear of God. It's to change our fear of God. It's to pass from the servile fear of the slave, the fear of punishment, to the loving reverence of the son, fearing to offend his father, and in the end, to the purely selfless fear of the lover, the fear of hurting what you love. So, John says next, simply this, we love because he first loved us. And this verse is really the pivot in our passage. It's the reason for everything he's just said and everything that he's about to say. So our confidence on judgment day, our lack of that terror, fear, it's because of the evidence we see of the love of God in our lives that we love because he loved us first. Um, there's a couple of writers, uh, Robert Lewis and Rob Wilkins, and they write about, they've written about what the newspapers call the dance of danger that involves bridge construction on top of swaying catwalks and high towers. Sometimes these are hundreds of feet in the air. And a, a century ago, they put a damage calculation to this, and for every million dollars spent on these bridges, they estimated that there would be one life lost. Um, now, engineers on the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, which you see there, believe that the risk could be lowered. And so in 1932, when construction started, they implemented all kinds of safety measures from hard hats to um, eyeglasses, um, no showboating, tie-off lines, all kinds of stuff. And after nearly four years of construction and $20 million spent, only one life had been lost. The big, most effective safety device, without question though, was as new to bridge building as it was old to the circus, they used a trapeze net. Um, they put it underneath, 60 feet below the roadbed and extended out on either side, and it was so effective that the newspapers began to run like a, a scorecard in the newspaper. They would say, score on the gate bridge safety net to date, eight lives saved, and they kept a running total of the guys who would fall into the net. Um, 
what they saw was that the net also had another significant benefit beyond just saving a life. It freed many of the workers from an almost paralyzing sense of fear. And that, many people said, many of the workers said, helped them work more productively. And so as the word of God, um, the love of God removes our fear, the fear of God's judgment, and secure in the love of God, we then become free to love others. Um, Hebrews writes about the removal of that fear. It says that Jesus himself partook of the same things, that is, of flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And now that we're free from that fear, John is going to say, for what must feel like the umpteenth time, right, that we really should love one another. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, see, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Okay? And the statement, John's not making the point here that it's really hard to love somebody who's invisible. That's not the point. The point is how radically and totally incompatible love for God is with hating your brother or sister. And Jesus told a parable about this. You'll hear echoes of what John's saying in the words of Jesus. Um, but love in Jesus' parable and his story is couched in the language of forgiveness. Um, let me just let you listen to Jesus as he told this story. So Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often... Uh, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So he's asking about the love of brother. Just like John's writing about. As many as seven times. And Jesus says to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And Jesus begins to tell a story. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, a boatload of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, pocket change by comparison, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned that servant, said to him this, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, if you do not love your brother from your heart. I don't know about you, but when I read that story, I don't think the servant really grasped the love that he'd been shown. Do you? I can phrase that differently. Do you 
grasp the love that you've been shown in forgiveness in Christ. See, our assurance that we get it, that we live in the love of God for us, comes from this first fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We love. We increasingly love. Do you? Do you increasingly love? Plus, John says, it's a command. Look at verse 21, the last verse we'll talk about today. He says, this commandment we have from him, from Jesus, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And it does. It comes from Jesus himself in John 13. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, that's just how the love of God works. It's poured into our lives and it overflows into the lives of people around us. That's just how the church is to work. Okay? Whatever else is said about North Wake, it should be said that we confess Jesus to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and we love people. We love especially one another because God loved us first. So let me invite you to, to bow with me in prayer as we close our time. So Lord, have mercy on us now. Help us, grant us faith to believe that you really are that loving. That the love you have for us, if we'll welcome it in Jesus, it banishes fear. That fear of judgment. So much so that it's a day we look forward to, a day that will be joyous, a day when we will have a reunion, a homecoming with the one we love most and who loves us most. Um, Lord, there are places where we've dammed this up at the edge of our own lives. There are pockets and places and people where we've said, I'm not going to love them. I'm not going to love him. I'm not going to love her. And we've got our reasons, God. So forgive us our selfishness. Remind us again how much you love us. That Jesus did come to bear our sins in love. And help us, Lord, in your mercy to pass it on. This we pray in Christ's great name. Amen.